0: big <laughs> It's a great book, not a fan. So how are you all doing? How many people are going to the baptism today? Nice. Nice. Heather is being baptized. Where is she? There she is, back there. And Beth Ann Gleason. Where's Beth Ann? I know she's here. Oh, there she is. She's sunk down low. But she will be front and center in a matter of a little bit of time. Understand that the water is really cold, which is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) All right, I'm going to pray and then we're just going to get right into it. I'm going to get my cell phone fired up, then I'm going to pray and we're going to get right into it. So God, we gather in the name of Jesus this morning. We thank you that you love us. Thank you for the gift of grace and mercy. Thank you for community. And how different you can make it. How it's seasoned and flavored with so many different lives. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of David as it's been preserved for so many thousands of years. And I pray that that through his story, we can learn more about who you are. I pray that you would speak to us as a community of faith this morning through his story. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my Redeemer. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned last week, um, it wasn't my intention, but I'm seeing that it's working out this way, that the story of David is building on each week. And, And so if you've missed some of David's of this series. This is number six in the series. If you missed some, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to them because they do build on each other as David's life progresses, as he grows in his relationship with God. So we are just going to get into David's story by starting in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says this While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's a very interesting scene in the life of Jesus. He is hanging out with riffraff, like the undesirables. He's hanging out with just kind of common people and the religious leaders, the bigwigs, they are thinking that these people are, they're unworthy to be around. They're unworthy to get to know. They're unworthy. They're just kind of, they're kind of those people. They're inferior. They don't deserve the time of day. They don't deserve any investment of conversation. And so they kind of they kind of mock Jesus, like, really, dude? You're hang- you're 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 eating with these people? These are the people that 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 didn't really they didn't pay much attention to religion. Or at least the way the Pharisees had introduced religion. Or the way the Pharisees practiced religion. So they weren't interested in the law. They weren't interested in the the traditions. They weren't interested in scribal law. They were just kind of out there and they were kind of doing their own things. They were the the common folk. But the Pharisees thought them unworthy to spend any time with. The word sinner. Says why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The word sinner Has a translation of those who are outcasts. And the tax collectors, they were buddy-buddy with the Roman Empire, and they would charge a little bit extra to the Jewish people, and they would take their cut, and then they would would pay Rome. And so they were not liked. See, what the Pharisees wanted to continually do was they wanted to maintain this, this club, this exclusive little club, and they just didn't want anybody in the club. You had to belong to the club and you had to play nice in the sandbox if you wanted to come into this club and you had to do certain things. And they wanted to stay away from those kinds of people because if they rubbed elbows with them, they would become ceremonially unclean. And then they just couldn't do all of their religious trappings that, that they, some of them were invented, some of them come from the Levitical law, but then they, they couldn't go into the temple and they couldn't practice their Pharisaic religion because they were rubbing elbows with people that were unclean, people that didn't follow dietary laws, people that didn't keep the Sabbath, people that did all these things that they were just like, no, we can't even look at you. We can't touch you. We can't come in contact with you. They had this very elitist attitude. And Jesus comes in and he just, he just, he just barrels down that whole tradition. He just, he just puts this whole tradition to rest because he comes in and he's actually eating with the tax collectors. He's eating with the sinners. These, those people, the outcasts. No holy man, no rabbi, no proclaimed uh, teacher of God's law would ever eat with them. Because by eating with them, by sitting with them, it means that Jesus was accepting them for who they were. No man of God would do that in the Pharisee mind. In fact, if you were a Pharisee, your mindset said if you really loved God, you had nothing to do with those people until they got it together, cleaned themselves up, and started making the right choices. But Jesus would say, see, it's the sick who need a doctor. I've I've come to call the unrighteous. Last week as we were exploring, uh, as we continue to explore David's story, we talked about him being out in the wilderness and he's kind of forced out there by Saul. He's on the run for his life. And towards the end of our time together, we talked about David being in a cave and he's in the back of the cave with his men. And Saul comes in to take care of some business and 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 david has the opportunity to kill him but david won't kill him because david is now just fully aware of god in his life and fully aware of what god is doing and so and so we saw this 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 from the outside looking in part of David's story. But then we went to Psalm 57 because in the Psalms we can learn the interior life of David. What's going on the in, on the inside? How is he wrestling with God? How is he dealing with God? And we see that in that Psalm 57 as David writes about, as he reflects about this time in the cave. He says that he is taking refuge in the Lord his God. He doesn't take refuge. See, refuge for him is not a, a geographical location. It's not the cave. It's not the sword of Goliath that he's had. Because it says there is no other sword like it in the land. It's not himself. And it's not even his men. He, His refuge is the Lord, his God. And that's where he will go to find and to seek and to be with God. And now what I find very interesting is David is going to spend 10 years in the wilderness. Ten years out there in the wilderness. He's anointed king at a very young age. He works for Saul in the palace, playing music and just kind of being that guy. And then all of a sudden, Saul doesn't like him because the Lord is with David. And now he's on the run for his life. He runs out into the wilderness. And he's going to spend the whole decade of his 20s out there, on the move, running from Saul. Ten years in the wilderness. Geographically emotionally, spiritually, this is David's experience. He is going to become an expert on wilderness living. He is going to know what it's like. He's going to experience the ups and the downs and all the heartache and the brokenness and the trials and the tribulations and always being on the move, never being able to just settle in and just kind of relax a little bit. This is David's life for the next 10 years. We kind of wrestled with this idea that you know there's there's none of us there, there there's none of us that just go through life every day with that peaceful easy feeling and it's and it's all just it's all just rainbow and glitters glitter and and there's there's nothing bad that that's happening and it's just everything is peaceful because we know that in our lives we're just do, we're just we're just doing the do we're walking along we're just experiencing these things and then all of a sudden something breaks in something something bad something painful something that that brings us heartache anger something just bulldozes its way into our lives uninvited and things change and so we've all find we've all have found ourselves out there In that wilderness, the metaphor of wilderness, spiritually, emotionally. But for 10 years, can you imagine that? Living like that for 10 years. But David's not going to live there alone. There are people with him. And there's a few verses in, in 1 Samuel 22 that gives, that sheds a little bit of light on the company that David is keeping in the wilderness. 1 Samuel 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to meet him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. And so David is out in the wilderness, and with him there is a people that have gathered around with him, and they are becoming a community. And maybe, you know, it's, it's not like these are your everyday kind of people. Well, actually, maybe they are your everyday kind of people. These, these are the in-debt, the, the, in the distressed, the discontent People. But first, it says that his family meets him there. Maybe his family is a little bit nervous. David's being hunted by the king. And so maybe they think that since the king can't find David, they're going to come after us. So they hook up with David. And a few verses later, it says that David takes his mom and dad to a place and he kind of hunkers them down and sets them up because he doesn't want them with him, I guess, running in the wilderness. Not everybody's fit for wilderness living. And so David kind of just settles them and then he goes off and then the rest of the people 400 men which means that that's counting the men not their families so you have women and you have children with david and 400 of them are in debt discontent and in distress they're feeling a little stressed out with life these are not the cream of the crop okay if you're in debt so much where you have to run you're probably not in a good place if you're distressed and you just want to leave society behind, your mental faculties are probably a little stretched at this point. These are the people that are with David. They're not emotionally or spiritually healthy. Stressed out. Dissatisfied with life. Discontent in debt. Maybe we can say that this group, in David's day, they are considered the outcasts of society. But yet there are people that are coming together. These are David's people. Maybe we can say it's his congregation. Or maybe we can even call it his church. Because he's going to live 10 years of his life with these people. And they're going to be doing what they need to do to survive in the wilderness. To, to make a go at it. All of the ups and the downs and the trials. Men, women, and children. And David has the crabby people. The not so happy people. Living in the desert. In caves. You know how crabby some of you get sitting in your air conditioning on a hot day. Imagine sitting in a cave eating bugs. But one of the things that the story doesn't tell me is the spiritual makeup of this group. There's nothing really in there about it. So I'm going to make some assumptions that I believe are safe assumptions. Because we know that David is a man of prayer who is learning what it means to deal with God out in the wilderness. David, David is aware of God. David is, is aware of God's activity. And so I would have to believe that David is teaching these people what it means to deal with God out here in the harshness of the wilderness. And I have to, have to believe that these people are experiencing God through David as David looks to God for his refuge, to take refuge in him. And so there's something that God is doing in these people and around these people. So you have, you have David, and he's their commander. And you've got about 400 disgruntled men and their families. And, and, and David is learning, and he's teaching, and he's pointing people, helping them realize what God is doing. And even though they're in this hard place... God is at work, working out his plan, working out his purposes in these people because these people are being led by David. God is working out his salvation in people who need to be saved. See, it's the sick that need a doctor. Jesus has come to call the unrighteous. And wherever there is a group of people, doing life together, and God is working out his plans and his purposes in this gathered group of people, today we would call that group a community of faith, or we would call them a church. This group are the broken ones they're the ones that don't have it all together don't have all the answers they're the ones that they're kind of stressed out in life a little bit you know they got things going on they got some issues they're they're kind of discontent with the way things are some of them are in debt in debt so much that they that they've run does any of that sound familiar to anyone here But I believe that they are not necessarily only defined by what they've done and where that they're going. Because see, there's a new definition being ascribed to these people. And it's what God is doing among them. And what God is doing with them. They are now being defined by the Lord their God. And it's a common thread throughout history. That God gathers these people together. These discontent, in-debt, stressed out people And then as he gathers them together, he does things among among them in spite of them. It's always interesting to me that some people come to church with this idea that church is a safe place. That church is a place where you're not going to find any of those, those outcasts, those stressed out, those hypocritical people. You come to church and so you must have it all together right? I mean, that's why you're here. You finally arrived, and now you want to share your arrival with the people at 176 Sandbank Road. And some people, some people actually have that idea that they come to church thinking it's a, it's a safe place. But I want to tell you the truth, okay? Here is the truth of the matter. You will never, ever be more frequently disappointed in the, in the context of spirituality than you will be at church. That's just the truth. Um, I'll give you a moment if you want to leave now. Go ahead. We won't hold it against you. You will never be more disappointed in the context of spirituality than in church. And some people come and they just don't find what they've expected. Because what they expect to walk in and, and, it's, and it's just everybody is smiling and everybody's drink the Kool-Aid. And everybody is just happy. And everybody is... They got it all together. And, and they just walk around. And you can hear... Ah, as they walk. Because the angels are singing over all of them. And everybody's standing under their own little beam of light with little sparklies that kind of just are cascading down upon them. And they know all of their scripture, chapter and verse. And they can just regurgitate it on command. But see, when they get there, they look around and they find people just like themselves. Stressed out, broken, discontent, in debt, crabby. I would even argue this, that if church is not a messy place when you get here, then you're not in church. See, we call that a country club. Because at a country club, you pay your dues to get in, and you got to look good at the country club. And you got to maintain status quo. Like if Buffy sees you and you're not like eating the right meal or something, things go really bad for you. And so you just kind of keep all of what's going on inside you. You just kind of keep it down there. You keep it at home. You don't share anything at the country club because it's all this this plastic conformity that you got to look good. See, if if church isn't messy, then it's not church because. Church has people that have a lot of issues. And the more people you get in a building that you call church, the more issues that are here. I could see it on some of your faces. He's like, he knows my issue. How does he know? Welcome to the real world of church. And yet, within the messiness, within that brokenness, within... All of that, God is working out his salvation in those who need to be saved. God is healing, and he's putting it back together, and he's reconciling. It's, not, it, it's, it's the sick who need the doctor. There, there's some people that I've met through the years, and they, they want to try to clean up the image of church. They want to make it look better. And so there, there's 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 actually books you can read about making the church better, like um, more shiny, I guess, is the only word that comes to mind. And and they want to just clean up this image. I, I, personally, I think one of the worst things that we can do is televise our church services. Whether whether you're on the big stage and you know you're on the national TV or you're on that little public access at 3:40 Oh five in the morning where four people are watching because because you 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 televise this this thing this event and it's all nice and shiny and you got your best pastor and you got your best preaching going on and the worship team's going on and you see people that just look like they're in love with jesus and i don't doubt that they are but you know their hands are up and some of them are just head bowed and some of them you know their hands on their chest and they're just singing and you're you're watching that you're like oh my goodness this is the one this is where everybody's happy. This is the happy church. But the reality of it is it doesn't give you a good picture of what's going on in the lives of people. That we are all distressed and broken. And we all got junk in our lives. And we got issues in our lives. And, and, it's, and it just doesn't do it any justice at all. I've, I've come to the point in my life where I am done trying to apologize to people that church is a messy place. When somebody tells me, yeah, church has a bunch of hypocrites, I say, yes, you are absolutely right. Thank you for noticing. But we have the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ who will cover that hypocrisy and will lead us to something different. That's what church is. That's the beauty of it. And now I believe it's, it, it, it's not even my job now to even think about changing the image of church worlds. I want to show you this verse in First uh, Corinthians. Check this out. First Corinthians 1. It says, brothers and sisters. You're my brothers and sisters. It's talking to you. I didn't write this though. It's in the Bible. Think of what you were when you were called. Go ahead, give it a minute. Don't look at me. All right, here we go. Ready? Not many of you, you are wise by human standards. Hey, this is not my words. This is the word of God, right? Don't kill me. Not many were influential. (laughs) Not many were of noble birth. Do we have noble birth in here? No one, man. But God chose the foolish things of the world. God just called you all foolish. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak thing. He just called you all foolish. Now he added weak. To shame the strong. God chose, here's my favorite, the lowly things of the world to dis- and the despised things. Have you ever? Did you wake up this morning and look in the mirror and go, man, I'm just feeling lonely and despised today. It's awesome. <laughs> and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us Wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one boast. Let no one who boasts boasts. Let, what's that say? Let the one let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You know what's special about each one of you? It's that the Lord Jesus Christ lives within you. And he is your righteousness and he is your holiness. Do you realize that we are the people who sat with Jesus at that table and the religious leaders looked down their noses at them? Do you realize that we are David's 400? The stressed out, the distressed, the discontented people, the people that are in debt. We are them. They are us. You know, it's funny that oftentimes in church, we find ourselves with people who we normally wouldn't choose to be with. <laughs> and I believe that people people wouldn't normally choose to be with us. Let's head back into David's story. We're going to skip a few chapters. We're going to head into chapter 27, 1 Samuel. David's on the run. He's been in the wilderness for a lot of years. And it says this, But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel. And I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him, now he's grown his church. God has grown his church. Left and went to Akish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Akish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. David's getting a little tired man he's getting a little worried he's getting a little burned out it's been a long it's been a long haul out in the wilderness and so he takes his community of people and he's going to move them into another community of people he's going to move them into into the enemy camp. He's going to shack up with the Philistines. Now he's been there in the past. It didn't work out to him. He had to act like a crazy man. Let drool come off his beard. And he leaves. But now he's back after many, many more years. His community is now integrating with another community. His his natural enemy. See these people. They worshipped false gods. These people hated the one true God. These people Hated God's people, Israel. He, they wanted those those people dead. They would do anything to kill them. And this is where David is finally taking refuge with the enemy, and he's going to even push it a step further. See, and if you read this whole chapter, what David is going to do is he's going to tell the king that he has turned traitor against his own people. He's tired of running from Saul. I'm going to turn traitor, and then I will go kill my own people. And what he's doing, he's going to kill the Philistines. and He's having all these battles, and and the story tells us he kills everyone. So that nobody can report back. And then David brings the plunder back to the king and shares it with him. And King Achish is very happy. He's very happy because he thinks that David has switched sides, this mighty warrior, and he's working for him. And that could be as far from the truth as the truth could be. You see, David, once again, is lying to save his own skin. Remember when he runs to the sanctuary in Nob and he tells Abinadab, yo, dude, don't worry. It's okay. I'm here on King's business. I need some bread and I need a sword and I'm gone. He lies to save his own skin. Once again, David comes under, comes into this that his kingdom under false pretense, and he lies. Now, there's two ways that we can define this whole situation. There's two ways that David has been defined in this. The first way is to, to condemn him for lying. He should know better by now. He's dealt with God for many, many years out in the wilderness. He should know the, the, the faithfulness of God. And so we should condemn him for lying. God hates lying no matter what if you're doing it to save your own skin, that obviously you don't trust enough in the Lord. And so they take this very moralistic perspective and they condemn David's actions. Or we can take it another way that most scholars will. And we could we can say, uh, we take it from a secular perspective. That look at... Look at how smart David is, how he just how he set himself up in this way. He kind of entered into the ways of the world and he utilized a little manipulation to kind of weasel his way in. Now his wife's they have a little better uh, standard of living. They're living in a kingdom and, and, and they, it's going on for him right now. And we congratulate David. He figured it out. He's he, yeah. OK, maybe the means weren't all that great, but he, he the, the end is good. He saved his life, and now he won't be killed by Saul, and he can go on to rule the kingdom. But if you read the entire story, 24, chapters 24, 25, 26, 27, if you go on, if you read David's entire story, it's not, it's not a moralistic plan. It's not a secular plan. What I see is God working and moving in spite of David's decision. It's God it's it's our god saves that's the story that's being unfolded in all of this not just oh look at what david's doing he's a bum or look at how smart david is look how he's figured this all out that's not the point it's our god saves in spite of david nowhere in the story does it say that this was the right choice Nowhere in the story did did, did God say, hey, Dave, this is what you really should do. Don't worry about lying. I got that. You know, you're not really lying if I told you to do this. Nowhere does it say it's correct. What we have is an historical account of what David has done. And yes, it might not be such a shining moment for him. But I'm sure that all of us have experienced a not so shining moment once or twice in our lives. And it's within that not so shining moment of David that God saves. See, God works on behalf of his people. You have to have, you have to, you have to, you have to. You have to, you have to, you have to to understand that the spiritual life, biblical spirituality, has nothing to do what you can do for God to understand biblical spirituality, to understand the gospel, you have to understand it is always about what God is doing for us. What God is doing in us and around us and for us. What he has done in the past, what he is doing now, and what he will do in the future. That is the gospel. It's not about what we can do, what we can muster. If I only, if I only. I use the phrase that we always should all over ourselves. You can laugh. ahead. That's funny. Good. See, David's story is our story. and, and, And our story is David's story. Have you ever been in that place? Overcome by life. And it's not like something, something catastrophic has just taken place. It's just life in general, man. You're just, things just don't seem to be going right. And, you know, it's, it's one more bill and one less dollar in the savings account. Or it's just, you know, you're at work and work is just terrible and everybody is terrible. And even the building's terrible and your parking place is terrible and it's just, it's just falling apart around you. And then you go home and you watch the news or you read the news and it's just, the world seems to be falling apart. There's nothing good that makes the news because then it wouldn't be news. So they just report all of the bad stuff and you're just walking through situation by situation, experience by experience. And you feel like you're just, you're fenced in, you're cornered and you don't know what to do. And and you just you don't know where to turn. You have no idea what what's going on, and you have to make a decision because you're tired of it. Something's got to give, and you have to make a decision. And maybe you're thinking, "Well, this is not going to be the best decision, but it's going to alleviate some of that stress, some of that pressure." And and you, and you fight with this and this this internal tension that's going on, man. If if I just do this, then it's going to it's this is going to be a little bit better. But I know it's not probably the the best thing to do, and you kind of beat yourself up over it. But you in the end, you make the poor choice. Maybe in the end, you make. The wrong choice. And you did it. And you don't feel. Completely right about it. But at least now. You can take a little bit of a breath. And it feels just a little bit better. I'm going to tell you something. And I want you to hear this. In that very moment. In that very moment. God is Sovereign. In that moment, God is always sovereign in every moment. And He is love. And God is always love. And He is willing to do for us what we will not do for ourselves. Do you see this pointing to the cross and to the work of Christ? That God is always willing to do for us what we will not do for ourselves. This is the Jesus story in the David story. And so David lives in the land of the Philistines. He makes that choice. And let me tell you, Christian, whether you like it or not, you are living in the land of the Philistines. And you are living under a pagan king. And and you have chosen to live here. It's your choice. I choose to live here. I love our country. Don't get me wrong. I love the United States. I love the freedoms that we have here. I love, I, love, I love living in our country. I've traveled to many, many different countries. I like this one best. But we are still living in the land of the Philistines, and we have made that choice. And sometimes as we walk through this life, we don't know what to do we don't know how to handle this we don't know what, what we should be doing or what we shouldn't be doing but we but we live here and so and so many of us we send our kids to schools who teach theories that that blatantly go against the word of god and they won't even allow an open and honest dialogue from a biblical perspective no they just they just they go this one direction and we choose to send our children there and, and for some of us, we work for bosses who live their life completely opposite of the Word of God. And there's nothing godly about them. Or we work for that company who, who has some questionable business practices every once in a while. But we need to have a job. Or We buy products from companies that have questionable business, business ethics, but we still wear them. Many, many years ago, I told people to look at the tags on their shirts. Where's your shirt made from? And they shouted out, all of these different countries... And I said, what do you know about that country? What do you know about those workers? How old was the worker that made that shirt? How much money do they make a day or a month or a year? What kind of working conditions are they, are they working under? And so we choose to buy garments and things from companies that we have no idea what kind of practices they use. And we, and we are engaged with, we're a part of a socioeconomic system that at times exploits the poor. And at other times, it enables the poor. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I don't like the Democrats, or the Republicans. I mean, I like them, but... We, We were part of a socioeconomic system that many times ignores people who are oppressed. But yet, how many of us in this room, and I'm included, how many of us in this room will go without so somebody doesn't have to? We will serve, and we will give, and we will be generous with it. And I, and I believe that we are a generous church. But not many of us will go without, so somebody doesn't have to. It's part of the system we are in. It's the decisions that we make. And I know that for many, at, at times, it causes a tension in us. And we become frustrated. But what else can we do? See, we all have cho- made the choice to live with the Philistines. And yes, we are called to live differently. We're called to live with a Christ-centered life. and, And I believe we're working towards that and we do that. But we live in a land that is hostile towards the gospel. That's just the truth. And sometimes that affects the decisions that we make. But here's the good news. You ready? It even gets better than the good news I had before. This is really good news. God will work out his plan even if we never lifted a finger to help him. Okay, even gets better. Are you ready for this? Okay, right, right? God is working out his plan even when we are actively making the wrong choice. You see, God's plan never gets thwarted. There's never a roadblock. It's never something that stalls. He never has to regroup and go, All right, we might have to come at this at a different angle, Jesus. What do you think? That's never a conversation that he has. God's plan will always work out. In exactly the time frame that he has planned it to work out. Whether we are part of it or we choose not to be a part of it. And I want to encourage you all to be a part of it as much as you possibly can. Because you will miss out on the blessings and the rhythms and the harmonies that he has for us, his people. But don't think because you have failed, you just ruined it for all eternity. That God's got to regroup now because you made a wrong choice. I will bet you that, John, did we count how many people are here today? How many? There's 143 people today. I will bet you that there are going to be, there's going to be 300 wrong choices made by the end of the day today. And that's only with 10 people. Now times that by all of the rest. God's plan is never thwarted. Never. Never. All right, I've lost my feet here. Let's try to get it back. I'm going to continue on in the story of David. When David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him a ziklag and it's belonged to the kings of Judah ever since david lived in philistine ter- territory a year and 4 months if you've any, if you've ever read matt chandler's writings he talks about this idea of moral deism and and what he what he describes it as is god doesn't become god but morality becomes our God. And so we strive to be as good as we possibly can because that's how we think we, we get in favor with God if, if we're good, if we, just, if we just get a little better, if we're better, if we're better. Now that doesn't give us license to be a bunch of doofuses and idiots, but but it's not, we're not. we don't earn anything from God. See, moral deism kills biblical spirituality because it does make it all about us, what we can do. It tells us that there's a very clean, precise set of moralistic rules and that we actually in and of ourselves we have the power to follow them and we just make dumb choices but you can make better choices all the time and you can figure this all out on your own but you see as you live in that moralistic uh, mindset and that moralistic deism mindset you will find that you can't there's it's just impossible to behave all of the time and so there's there's just it's just this thing of there's absolutely no grace in it and, 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 and I've come across people who just look down, um, at, down their noses at people because they have done this and they have done that, and they actually believe that they are better than them. You know, the Bible, Jesus, what did he teach? He said, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. That doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. And then there's this, this other, the other side of it is a, is a secular deism, where you look you look to learn the ways of the world and you look to kind of harness and manipulate the way the world operates and if you can just figure that all out then you then you take your life and you sprinkle a little god into your life and 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 so God becomes just one of many seasonings that you put into your life. And so you can season it also with, with economic status and intellectual status and social status and religious status. And you just figure out how this is all going to play out and you manipulate all these things. And then at the end now, once I've got this all figured out and how to work the system, then it's all going to be good with me. But you see, there's no mercy in that because you can't save yourself. You can't do it. Or Jesus wasted his time on the cross. And I don't think Jesus wasted his time on the cross. We can't save ourselves. David is given his own town. And now he has 600 men with their wives, with their children, the discontent, the distressed, the in-debt, the not-so-happy crowd. They are now all gathered into one place. I believe the address was 176 Sandbank Road, Ziklag. And they're all together now. And for you that are visiting, that's our address here. Sometimes Christians end up with other Christians that they wouldn't have chosen to end up with. Sometimes people have ended up with you and you wouldn't have been their first choice either. And see, that's the reality of church. It's difficult sometimes to realize that God isn't just in the business of saving the nice people. The ones that are always smiling. That he's, that, he's, that he's just not saving the happy-go-lucky people who are going to agree with me all of the time. The people that when I walk into the room, they genuflect on one knee and say, welcome. Welcome. God isn't just going to save those people. He's going to save the crabby ones, the discontent, the stressed out, the broken, the ones with issues. God is looking to save you and I because we are those people. And God is working in you, and God is working in me, a bunch of stressed out sinners. We are a community of stories that are taking place simultaneously. And we are affected by others and we, our story affects others. And if you read the Bible with any integrity at all, you will understand that we cannot survive alone. We cannot survive the journey alone, and we definitely cannot survive the wilderness alone. We need the community of riffraff to come together and to support us. We need it. It's not an option. We need the community that God is working in, even if you cannot visibly see it. Because spirituality, spirituality many times doesn't look very, very spiritual. Spirituality, biblical spirituality, God work, Jesus work, doesn't always look very spiritual. It looks just like life, with the ups and the downs, and the struggle and the push and the pull. And so every single day, Every boring, run-of-the-mill, mountaintop one day, valley the next day, mundane, same old, same old day in life is saturated with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they are working in us and they are working around us and they are working us. Through us, And I would say most importantly, they, they, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, they are working in spite of us. I want to welcome you all to church. I love you guys more than you'll know. I'll see you next week. If you're going to come watch some people share their story of what God's doing it. We're going to meet there in Southington at 11.30. Peace. That means you can go.